Welcome to The Maker and The Merchant with Fergus Elias and Lee Isaacs. Well, Ferg, here we are again. The Maker and The Merchant, Season 2, Episode 3. Ferg? Ferg? Well, dear listener, I really don't know what to tell you. Fergus has taken an unauthorised leave of absence from TMTM Towers. All I can say is that this will be addressed in the strongest possible manner. But don't worry, this episode won't just consist of me waffling. Nobody needs to hear that. I'm very lucky today to be joined by a fabulous guest from Balfour Hush Heath, Jack Merrilees, who is their marketing and PR director, formerly head of content brand and PR at Majestic. He's well worth listening to got some great insights and thoughts around the world of wine and especially where marketing and comms is concerned. Now when it comes to comms and marketing I wanted to highlight that today Thursday the 1st of June as this episode goes live is also results publication day for the IEWA that's the Independent English Wine Awards in which I'm very privileged to be a judge and a panel chair. I thoroughly enjoy taking part in this competition. Lots of very talented, skilled, thoughtful cool people judging there and I'm there as part of a government scheme obviously we can't have the average going too high but it does give you a great snapshot an idea of to what's happening in the world of English wine and who are the movers and shakers who's coming up and everything that's going on so do head over to the IEWA on all the social media channels and their website check out the results some fabulous wines being tasted and shown and yeah have a look and maybe try and find some of those wines and give them a taste and a huge thank you to Alex Taylor uh, and Sandy Taylor and everybody else involved in making the IEWA happen. It really is um, a, a highlight of the annual calendar, uh, mainly because I'm actually allowed to get out of the house for that, and, and that only happens uh, three times a year. So thank you to them. Uh, on a personal note, and this won't take too long, um, I just want to personally thank uh, Mike from Bin2, Tim Carlisle, uh, Emily from the Ox Wine Company. Um, recently, they've just sort of sent some messages and, and made some phone calls and said some very friendly, very kind things, which were completely unnecessary and unwarranted. Um, but those things do make a difference, and it's very, very much appreciated. And because I'm not very clever or articulate, uh, I'm not really able to convey um, the importance or, or how much those things meant. So thank you, sincerely. Thank you also to Ferguson Bethan, who very kindly sent me a couple of little gifts, which definitely raised a smile. And again, completely unnecessary, but very, very much appreciated. It is a shame though that Fergus has done that because obviously once he's back from Portugal, he, I will have to severely reprimand him. Um, but I think we walk that line between, you know, the professionalism and, and personal relationship very well. Uh, Ferg's big enough to, you know, to know how it works. Anyway, Thank you for listening. Sorry for waffling on, on my own. Don't worry, it gets better. Um, over to wonderful interview with Jack Merrilees. Uh, and thank you to Jack for joining us um, on a bank holiday when we recorded it. Anyway, get yourself a nice glass of wine or cup of tea if you're listening in the morning or coffee. Many beverages are available. And settle in for a great hour with Jack Merrilees from Balfour. Cheers. So, without further ado, I would like to welcome to the TM and TM Towers, Jack Merrilees, uh, former Head of Content, Brand and PR at Majestic, current Marketing and PR Director at Balfour, and always International Man of Mystery. Uh, Jack, how are you this fine morning? I'm very well, thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. I'm, I'm 
slightly bemused to be spending my bank holiday Monday doing this, and hopefully I'm not too much of a kind of poor replacement for Ferg, but uh, I will endeavour to try and be witty and interesting as best I can be. Well, the fact that you're going to try and be witty and interesting instantly puts you ahead of Ferg in the, uh, in the <laughs> podcast host states. Thankfully, you stepped into the breach. And as you said, it's it's a bank holiday, so I really appreciate you giving up the time to talk to me, Not of all people. So, um, I uh, I don't know if Fergus went this through this with you, but he's not sent me the paperwork. This is just some sort of standard TM and TM qualification questions. There's no pressure. There are right answers, I'm afraid, but I, I just need to run through these quickly. It's just a, a little bit of security to you know allow you into the building in future. Um, Got it. The, firstly, is uh, which is your favourite sport between cricket and snooker? Oh, uh, cricket by by a long chalk. Okay. Don't, don't worry, I'm just writing something down, but it's nothing for you to worry about. It's okay. Fine. Um, what is your preferred chess opening? Uh, uh, the one where the pawn moves forward a bit. That one. That, that's, I think, is the strongest of all openings. Yeah. Uh, and I, uh, my instant default. So that's good. And finally, what is your opinion of people who drink rosé? Uh, well, I mean... What kind of rosé? I guess you know. Are they are they going kind of slightly dark pink, gastronomically interesting? Are they going pale, kind of watery nonsense? I, it, it's my opinion of them is as varied as the styles that are available. Is that a bit of a politician's answer? It, it, it's a very safe but a very fair answer. And and here at TM and TM, we're not really known for fairness, but I will allow it. I will allow it. I, okay. I personally rosé, so I'm uh, in favour. Okay, um, you, you have been allowed into the building. I'll have a word with security. I think they'll let you in again. But Jared, thank you. Obviously, as I, I sort of said in that non-intro, a, a little bit about what you know, what you've done and what you're doing now. But it'd be nice just for for a few minutes for for our dear listener, just in case she hasn't come across you, and, and I'm sure she has. Uh, Ferg's mom, thanks for listening. Um, just to go back to sort of the start of the wine journey, where where and how did the wine journey begin for you? Sure, I, I'm hoping by the way that my my mum. Libby will also kind of be be listening and if if she doesn't WhatsApp me afterwards then I know she hasn't and I'll be obviously bereft but there we go so hoping to double the double the listener base this week thank um, you <laughs> I I started in the wine industry in I think probably the most conventional route which is um I was a trained archaeologist uh, which I also kind of have in common with Ferg with his kind of classics background so um i graduated from cardiff in 2012 with a degree in medieval history and archaeology which um i was on one of only two people in the entire university who did that degree so uh, as you can imagine it was pretty pretty competitive um it was kind of the back end of the recession and the credit crunch and um prospects were not amazing so i basically applied for any job going and the three jobs i got accepted for one was a paralegal job at a car insurers uh one was i think with virgin media selling kind of broadband over the phone and then another one was uh as basically a van driver for majestic wine in swindon um and so i kind of did that job i majestic were actually the ones who were paying the most out of those three so i went with them um i kind of thought it'd be an interesting thing to do for a little while um i was planning to kind of go back to university do my master's and and become a, a proper archaeologist um and that was 11 years ago. And I've, been, I've left Majestic um, only a couple of months ago. In fact, less than that. So um, it kind of, I caught the bug, I think, from from yeah. that. And, you know, despite the commuting two and a half hours a day, which I was doing from Cardiff to Swindon for the first few months and 
various other roles since then it's it's kind of been one of the the best things i've ever done obviously and has led me to to where i am today so um yeah worked worked in in the swindon store for a while for majestic then then did various branches around the southwest um i've sold wine in falmouth sirencester bath totness devises you know all over the all over that part of the world um during that time i i started doing a bit of writing so i was doing the the w set um diploma and just in my own spare time i started writing a blog on wine and archaeology and kind of the the interesting stories of of the past and you know there's some amazing stories in wine there's some incredible you know as you can imagine it's it's all of human history in a bottle and you've got everything from brilliant story in the middle ages of when um a a group of farmers tried to excommunicate um some locusts that were eating their vines and they they took these these kind of insects to court in a ecclesiastical court to have them excommunicated so that they could they could take steps to eradicate them and some churchmen decided to defend these insects and the the insects won <laughs> and so um this was in i think san julian in in bordeaux and and just these lovely little tidbits in wine um you know they they argued that as god's creatures they were as entitled to the grapes as the as the vignerons were and so um they they defended them successfully in court and they were not excommunicated and um, but you know hundreds of little stories like that that i just loved spending my kind of weekends as i was learning about wine you know I, i'm not particularly academic from a kind of sciencey point of view um i've always found wine most interesting when it's about stories and it's about people and and history um and so i kind of found my own route into wine through through that um that blog it's still up there it's past cuttings if anyone wants a little read i haven't i haven't actually updated it for a while but that was my kind of route into marketing and, and wine writing um it got picked up by the powers that be at majestic they asked me if i wanted to kind of move more into that area which was which was really nice um and so i kind of moved into to pr in particular for majestic and i did that for kind of four or five years in various different guises including events and partnerships and um i was head of pr during the whole majestic naked divorce period so that was obviously quite intense i was then head of comms and pr during covid which was incredibly intense you know i was one of only kind of three people allowed into our office at any one time and you know writing comms on the hoof a lot of the times and staying up watching those government briefings and trying to work out what it meant for for wine retail and getting comms out to the stores before you know people decided whether they were going to work the next day and all that kind of side of things um and then i for the last year or so i I looked after all their kind of marketing channels as well so that's everything from the emails we send out i know you get too many emails i've heard it but anyway um to the kind of flyers we produce and and product descriptions and all that and then um yeah just kind of decided my my race was run with majestic a little bit kind of left with you know with a lot of fond memories and a lot of kind of positive thoughts towards the people and the company but just decided 10 and a half years was was kind of long enough really so um i've been lucky enough to to move into the world of english wine which is where i really you know really always saw my future and really wanted to be um and now work with with dearest ferg at, at balfour towers which is three weeks in so um you know quite an intense three weeks but incredibly exciting to kind of be in that world now wow sorry that was quite a lot wasn't it that was, that was... no that's I, I mean, this is the the, the ideal thing for, for our podcast listener, uh, and hopefully listeners once once your your mum starts uh, starts joining the, uh, the the very exclusive club. 
the, the thing that our listener really wants is for me to say as little as possible. So, and actually, it's less fun I'm for me sure to say. I can just, I'll, I'll just sit here and drink coffee to ask you one question. That is, so one of the things is, you know, we say, uh, you sort of answered a couple of the other questions I had prepared. So my uh, my scripts now just got out the window. We would say some of the, the, one of the very best things about the industry is the people in it. And partly that's because, you know, people like yourself, you're very intelligent people who've done a, a really interesting degree really and, 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 and incredible experience don't do yourself a disservice that's my job here um <laughs> you know archaeology I, I i'm thinking about all the amazing people i've met in wine not through wine but in wine i've not met an archaeologist so but really? actually my, my first question off that is as a as a fully qualified and trained archaeologist uh what do you actually make of indiana jones's methods so i have never seen indiana jones uh, what? And, you're... and that, and that, honestly, when you're doing an archaeology degree, is I might as well have, I don't know, pulled down my trousers and upset the entire room. It's, wow. it's, yeah. I've never, I'm, I'm bad at films, man. I've never seen The Lion King, never seen Jurassic Park, never seen Indiana Jones, never seen Schindler's List. All these ones, Godfather. I just, I've seen The Lord of the Rings more times than I can count, right. and that's my film. That's your film. And is is that a, like sort of you know to to what to like to really engage with the film? It's like engaging with a bottle. It takes time. It takes energy. Mm. It takes effort. I, I guess there's just other things you prefer doing, right? Do you watch sort of whether it's box sets, TV series, or it's like just the visual thing? Which is yeah. not really something you do. Yeah, basically, basically, I'm, I've just probably not got the attention span, which is a bit, which is weird because I I love Test cricket, and that's kind of my my meditation um but yeah no I just it's just I don't know I think growing up I did a lot of I did quite a lot of computer games and a lot of kind of sport and just being outside and things and just the whole kind of sitting down to watch films was just not really just not really something we did I don't know yeah, yeah. I, I also personally I think it's TVs in Yorkshire that was the problem I think so. <laughs> I also think I think it's really cool you can go yeah I'm a qualified archaeologist and everybody's going to do what I've just done which is make an Indiana Jones gag and you can go no, I don't know anything about that. I think it's just... that, yeah, that's that's become part of it now. Is is that actually they're they're always on at Christmas, aren't they? And I'm, I'm always tempted. Yeah. And I think, oh yeah, but I wouldn't be able to say that. And I'm probably kind of self denying myself some some great films, but yeah, I I, I think there's really something in that. This that I, I I tend to be uh, contentious, and if something is popular, I immediately take a dislike to it. I'm so as, I've never seen an episode of Friends. I will never watch an episode. Of, now I would. Pop, there's a strong possibility I might actually enjoy that, right? Mm. Watching it, I'm not going to. No, it's too popular. I'm not doing it. Not I, d- I don't like the Beatles for the same reason. That's that's a. I I didn't. I do now, but it took mm. a long time. But again, it, it's it's sort of it's these things are too easy. So, yeah. like, um, oh, what do you like? I like this thing that everybody else does. I'm not sure. The cool thing to do, Lee, and the thing that I always do is is wait till everyone's moved past it five years later and then watch it and i've just watched the wire and right. I, I know he wants to talk to me about the wire because it's obviously like 20 years old or whatever it is now but i'm like oh god guys have you seen this amazing it's like yeah. <laughs> i did i did the same thing with breaking bad didn't yeah, see it still not, still not got around to that one yet did the succession i haven't watched yet yeah, yeah I, i'm not i'm nowhere near that i mean that's a good decade away for me most yeah. likely um, but, but anyway, what, my original is out of touch. Shall we? <laughs> <laughs> we will be doing very topical material here at TM and TM. Um, but I was saying, you know, wine attracts 
really cool, interesting, smart people who you've gone off and done this thing and then, you know, maybe there isn't any work. And that's why wine is so full of people. You know, wine and archaeology, I've not really heard that, but I've heard of lots of other things being put in wine. Um, and I was going to ask you about past cuttings in this blog, but um, that's uh, past cuttings. Go and check that out because just from the, the, the story you've delivered there about the insects, uh, that's I, I'm, I'm the same shit. That's what wine's about. Those stories mm. and, and bits and pieces. Was so obviously you've done the degree, looking for work, you know, landed in Majestic. Was wine sort of obviously films weren't part of your life before that? Was wine something? that was around was it something like growing up maybe your parents or family drank or was it you know when you joined Majestic actually it was still all quite new so my my mother hello again listener um she she's uh, just New Zealand Sauvignon was pretty much all that was was in the house dad dad was pretty into kind of wines but not in a you know in a very much a he will like something but without kind of really taking a note of it necessarily mm-hmm. um you know but actually has a, a you know kind of interest in it and interest in kind of trying different things um but no not not especially to be honest I really what I really wanted to do was going to beer actually I really loved the idea of brewing and I kind of saw that more of the from the kind of history point of view as well of kind of you know this traditional Englishy you know you go back with the history of ale and everything else and I, I found that really fascinating so I, I was a trying to find an internship at a brewery in in Wales was kind of remember one of the other things I was I was desperately applying for um but no I mean I think your point around you know the the backgrounds that people come to wine from and that's what makes it so fascinating right is that if you are interested in biology you can you know get mm-hmm. into viticulture and you know clonal selection and how different rootstocks favor different soils and all that if you're interested yeah. in chemistry there's the whole fermentation process if you're interested in geography there's terroir if you, you know it just you're absolutely right I, I find that i am a massive advocate if anyone ever asked me to join the wine industry i'm just like yeah get in get in yeah. because it's you will find your niche you'll find your kind of home and your tribe and and then the amazing thing is you can do all that learning and and reading and get interested in it and then you get to drink the stuff at the end as well <laughs> um and that's what you know for me archaeology and wine i've, I've kind of written about it a bit but you know, wine is living history, literally, yeah. when you can, you know, there's an amazing story and it's, I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or not, but um, there's this story about how Churchill, after the Second World War, visited, I think it's Elba, where Napoleon was um, was was kind of captured, after, uh, sent into exile um, after the end of the Peninsula War. And he, he bought a couple of pipes of Madeira, sorry, it was St. Helena, um, and he bought a couple of pipes of, of Madeira and he put it aside and then he would he then died and, and didn't get a chance to drink it. And um Churchill, when visiting the island, bought these pipes. And then they had a dinner party on St. Helena, and he insisted on serving everyone at the dinner party these pipes of wine. And he insisted on pouring it himself. And to everyone he said, you know, when this was grown, Marie Antoinette was still alive. And I just like that whole idea that you can have like something that connects Marie Antoinette, Churchill, and Napoleon yeah. and can then be drunk and enjoyed yeah. and exactly. you know sorry no, no, no you, you know wine is is living history and i get i this sort of the, a moment of realization for me happened on one of my first trips out to south america uh and i was drinking wine made from you know well over 100 year old vines and the the wine itself was um from bodega ben uh, bodega benegas um meritage and the wine itself was just mind-blowing mind-blowingly mm. good in, incredible wine and, and then you go, hang on, the people that planted those vines, they're long gone. 
Yeah. I've somehow got a connection to these people I could never possibly meet because they're not alive or I couldn't meet them because they're so far away, whatever. That connection to pieces of history and actually it connects to, you know, really, really famous, well-known people mm. throughout history. And you're physically, as you, you know, it's a time capsule that yeah. genuinely the moment that stops blowing my mind is game over. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't, I don't see that, that time coming. Would you say there's, so you've, you've joined Majestic, obviously started sort of driving the vans and you'll be tasting wine. Was there a, a particular wine that, I suppose, epiphany wine, was there a wine you tasted and went, hang on a minute, this is, yeah, the, the, you know, the, that clearly took you to the next level? There absolutely was. Um, I, wrote, I wrote about it for a piece for um, Janice Robinson a couple of years ago, actually. It was, uh, I, funny you mentioned kind of South America, it was, it was actually Yarly Wetlands Gewurztraminer. And it was so alien to anything else I'd ever drunk at that point because I'd grown up in a family of New Zealand Sauvignon and kind of probably Aussie Chardonnay really was what my dad was probably drinking at the time. And suddenly you've got this weird lychee spiced kind of exotic fruit bomb, um, which when you're, you know, in a, I mean, that Swindon Majestic store, it's been closed down a few years ago now, um, but it was an absolute, dump it was you know there was a, <laughs> a homeless chap had moved in above it because there was an abandoned flat um it had been set on fire in 2008 and they hadn't even bothered repainting the walls so there were school scorch marks all around it it was the worst oh. store in the majestic estate by a mile and i loved it for that but it was it was properly you know um but then you know all of a sudden you're, you're in this kind of grim grim well you know spot in swindon bless it and then you're suddenly drinking this incredibly exotic, interesting, you know, Chilean odyssey. And yeah, it just kind of blew my mind really that wine could could be like that and taste like that. And I just used to, I remember just spending my time just reading all the tasting notes and reading all the, the back labels of everything in that store um, just because of, you know, those connections and those stories and, you know, just to be transported somewhere a little bit that wasn't swindled, <laughs> really. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, that, that I remember that being the one, and I don't even like Gewurz particularly now, but I do just remember that moment of just God, this is if this is the start of the kind of learning curve, then that's a really exciting kind of first step on that on that journey. Yeah, what what a brilliant place to start as well. And it's when you have that mm. that thing that's so different to everything else you've experienced, and then you, that realization, oh, the grapes can do this. That's, and then you, yeah. how how is it? Why is it done it? What's what's going on there that isn't going on in the other stuff? Um, what a, f- a fabulous place to start. Um, I, I was going to do sort of the obvious question, like favourite film and so on and so forth. We've addressed that. So the last the, the, the last question in the um, sort of get to know Jack bit is, if you were arrested and no statement was released, what would your friends and family assume you've done? Oh, God, that's not a question. Um, what would my friends and family assume I'd done? Ah, uh, I think it would probably be probably be kind of trespassing on a cricket pitch or something like that. Or yeah, I tend to I I'm a big I love kind of going off and walking and things quite a lot, and um not always that great at following public footpaths. So it'd probably be trespassing, I would guess. Okay, that's that's in, you know in the list of misdemeanors that that's pretty low. So yeah, that that, that gives us a good idea about your moral see. code. I don't want to say anything alcohol related, although I a hundred percent think they would say that. But um, yeah, something along those lines. Excellent. Don't worry, that picture of the you with the traffic cone on your head—that's not going anywhere. Don't worry, that won't yeah, be released to the public at all. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So, 
you sort of touched on obviously starting Majestic and, and eventually ended up in the in the marketing side of things. And as you know, we had a, a little text exchange before we were recording this, um, which I read back over before we started today. And you said, um, you know, sort of marketing in wine isn't often covered, or if it is, it's it's always negative. And I sort of thought back to my experiences reading through Twitter mainly of people talking about wine marketing, and it, it's very rarely done in a in a positive aspect. And mm. that led me to the sort of maybe the sort of people who were whose tweets I were reading but I suppose firstly you know just 10 11 years broadly speaking in that sort of marketing how how has wine marketing changed in in that period of time that's a really good question I think you know there's obviously been a big push towards interactivity engagement you know all these kind of terms that people use I love the story of things like you know, the 99 crimes one is one that everyone always cites as being kind of game changing, you know, using your phone to, to scan faces and to, to kind of have that element of fun. You know, and I don't know if you've read the, the Joe Fatterini article on that and what an amazing piece of marketing that was, because you then got everyone's locations and data and when they're when they're scanning those bottle codes and that informs this amazing marketing calendar from from them where they can actually um you know, know when people are opening their wines and which wines and mm-hmm. and target kind of campaigns around those dates, which are absolutely fascinating and, and very, very clever. Um, I think generally there's obviously been, you know, a big push towards different ways of messaging. I think there's the big thing and the thing that really kind of wine, Twitter, I would call it, but the trade really gets its kind of knickers in a twist around is is this idea of inclusivity and trying to make wine engaging and trying to appeal to new audiences and I think we personally I've always had a bit of an opinion that we we try too hard and that we're too self-critical um I don't think we're very kind to ourselves as a trade at times I think we do quite a good job of engaging people to be perfectly honest I think you know it's an aspirational very complex subject um and that's the joy of it and I really I get very wary of people who want to make wine too accessible and too simple because you know it's if I'm allowed to use a cricket analogy it's like test cricket you know it is complicated um and it and it is a bit alienating but you know what when you spend the time to learn about it it really rewards you and I think marketing should focus on that idea of bringing people on that journey you know giving them an easy leg up giving them an easy introduction but then trying to inspire them to learn more and to, mm-hmm. to kind of take the time to understand it better. Um, and I think, you know, we get a bit fixated on following a zeitgeist of people who maybe aren't that interested in wine and maybe they're not going to get that interested in wine or maybe they are, but it's going to come at the right time for them. And, you know, I think there's a really interesting role that marketing can play and nobody's got a silver bullet for this. I mean, I've worked mm-hmm. with some incredibly talented people who all think that they can come in and fix wine marketing and think that they can, you know, oh, we need to make it simple. And I've, we've done, you know, we've done some in, in really interesting groundbreaking stuff, even at, at Majestic with, you know, things like we did this this thing called Winify, which was a brilliant idea around, you know, you come in, you taste eight wines, we match your palate to a colour on, yeah. on a wheel. Um, and then the store is laid out in those colour wheels. So if yeah. you like, Zinfandel and Malbec, you'd be a purple. If you like Oki Chardonnays, you'd be a yellow. If you like New Zealand Sauvignons and Alberino, you'd be a light green. And then the yeah. store would be laid out light green, purple, you know, whatever. So you could just literally taste eight wines and then go to your section. And we'd be reasonably confident that if you bought anything from that section, 
you would you would like it and then we can do really clever things like do a 25 percent off like green wines you know and target those people based on their palate didn't work didn't work at all because what happens is your core customer base who are the ones who actually make you the money come in and go where's my white burgundy yeah oh well Chablis over in the light green, but your Macons are all in your yellows because they're it's like, well, no, I don't don't want that. I want I want white burgundy. And so, you know, and actually that's that's fine. That's that's also fine because at the end of the day, that's what those people are comfortable with as well. You know, and I I don't think there's anything wrong with sitting between those two camps and actually there being exchange between those two camps of people who you know, might discover Pickpool because they've always drank Pinot Grigio to somebody who can tell you what the best vintage from Burgundy over the last 40 years is. Like, you know, the the joy of wine is having those two camps existing joyously and sharing a bottle of wine. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's, it's a broad church, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think we get a bit self-flagellating around the fact that, you know, we don't have more people progressing. They are progressing. Mm. People are learning more about wine. But, you know, the people I talk to are desperate to learn more, but in their own time, in their own way, and they don't want it rammed down their throats necessarily. Um, You know, that's why I think, you know, the role that you do, Lee, and and kind of people like yourself doing those kind of consumer tastings and giving those experiences, it's far more important, um, you know, that people have those kind of avenues to to be able to reach out to and and make it fun (laughs) at the end of the day. You know, that's the other thing. It should be fun and it should be engaging. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, in terms of the changes, I think it's still trying to find the right balance. But you know, it's such a huge industry, and you have so many, so many variations and variables that actually finding a one size fits all is never going to work. So don't let's not kind of waste too much energy trying to find that. Let's just you know do do what's right for the right brand or for the right kind of customer. Um, so yeah, <laughs> in a slightly roundabout way, I think probably still searching for the right thing over the last ten years, but. You know, I certainly think there's enough talented and interesting people out there that that it's kind of getting closer. But it's just all about that balance. Yeah, I, I I agree. It's that if you if you provide something so every segment can get into it, so those people are just like I just like drinking a pinot grigio on Friday night, brilliant. Those people are a bit more engaged than that, then a bit more engaged. Than that. that naturally provides the ladder. So as yeah. long as you cater for all of them, the ladder you don't have to then figure out what the ladder looks like because it already exists. I, I love the idea of the, the color coding thing with majestic but i could i could foresee it somebody going in oh i, I like argentine Malbec. well you'll be purple oh i don't like purple i don't yeah. like that color <laughs> you can't, can't believe but the, the, the self-flagellation thing i saw again i can't recall who it was but somebody tweeted within the, in my head it's within the last two or three weeks and basically said you know those of us that work in wine need to realize that not everybody's going to be as interested and passionate as we are and my personal response to that was well actually most people i work with in wine already know that yeah. Right. I, I, yeah. I, I don't. I, I don't see what you're trying to suggest. Um, I, for me, sorry, just on that point, no. you know, I would encourage anyone who wants to work in marketing or to work in wine generally, actually, to do a crash course in PR. I think we're we're quite one thing. I think we are crap at is PR, yeah. um, because we think that what's interesting to us is interesting to everyone. You know, well, we don't, sorry, to your point, but like we we need to have that awareness at all times that people have minimal amount of interest and we have to, you know, it's everything for me is about what's the hook, what's the hook. And I've spent, I've built a career on trying to create hooks. And actually that's the same, whether it's my own marketing or it's, 
you know, writing press releases, trying to kind of start trends, start engagements. Don't always get it right. Sometimes you go a bit too far tabloidy. You know, oh, there's going to be a rosé drought. I remember writing that one one year, not my <laughs> finest. Um, but, you know, to try and encourage a sense of, of, of kind of, and then, you know, it was a bad harvest and rosé sales were rocketing. So there was some truth in it, but it was, you know, it was a bit kind of hyperbole. But actually spending that bit of time to, to listen to people, to actually just go and, you know, I, one thing we maybe need to do more of is just spending a bit of time on a shop floor. And I think that's why Majestic and Oddbins from your background, Lee, um, you know, just it's such an amazing coalface to, to kind of work at because you you really understand what people are actually drinking and what the stories they're telling. And, yeah. you know, I, every time anyone asks me how to get a career in wine, I say, you've got to start in the shop floor. You've just got to because you understand how people drink wine in the real world and what is interesting. And you can you can test messages on them and see what sticks, you know, and it's it's the best focus group you'll ever do is just spending time talking to customers. And we don't we don't do enough of that i think i think there are a few ivory towers who just think that this is interesting to me therefore it must be interesting to other people yeah um but I, you know and, and i think that's at different levels that's not necessarily you know critics or personalities or the trade as much but i think it's certainly in a few kind of marketing meetings i've sat in with not necessarily with my immediate team but in other areas as well no i um i i, I couldn't I can't say anything else to what you said other than I completely agree. That shop floor, start there. And I, I, I'm the same. People say, how can I get into wine? Find a wine shop, whether it's you yeah. know, national retail like Majestic, your local indie, get in there. Because also, you, you learn about the whole spectrum of wine because one minute you'll talk about entry-level Chilean Merlot, the next it's sort of quite yeah. decent Bordeaux or whatever. But you learn what consumers are, are thinking about. And that's, you know, it, it's a bit like wine tasting, right? When you say, I'm giving you the answer. Like I've given you the answer, you've just got to work it out. We're trying to figure out what people want. Well, they're there. Like they're telling us what they want. We just need to, to listen to them more. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's why the the you know, the wine of our trial at Majestic was always a bit doomed to fail. Is because you don't need that in a store like Majestic because you've got three or four WSET qualified people and a tasting counter. You know, that's it was kind yeah. of undermining the whole proposition in a in a way. You know, I'm not saying it was a bad idea, it's it was kind of a really interesting idea but it was probably the wrong environment to put it into because the whole point of majestic and it's, it's the reason i love the company is that it's it's there to take the pinot grigio drinker onto pickpool you know yeah. literally that is the point of it it's there to take yeah. the supermarket drinker and get them into indies that is the role yeah. of a company like majestic and actually it's also why i joined balfour because i, yeah. I really see balfour as very similar in the mm. sense of you know they make a big range of wines at quite an accessible level but then with you know ferg's winemaker collection and the vintage series and stuff like that they've got the interesting expertise quality stuff that they can try and hopefully take people on that journey to and then let them loose on the whole gamut of english wine as well and i think that's back to the point we said you know to the point you said originally it's just making sure we have those different layers for people to find to pitch their level of comfort and then making sure that we've got enough talented and well-trained people to to help them progress and get them into the more interesting stuff it's all about kind of building ladders and building stories and you know and again i think we're actually quite good at it as an industry yeah. Um, yeah. we just don't give ourselves the credit for it no we don't you, you look at you know there's so many people out there doing it in, in different ways you know this this industry is filled with brilliant storytellers yeah and all of it all marketing i'm not a marketer 
Um, you know, marketing is, is, is telling a story ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all the amount of people, and there's some that are really well known and they're on TV regularly. There are others who are sort of writing columns. There are others who are doing it through social media. We've got brilliant communicators and storytellers in this industry. We don't yeah. kind of recognize that enough. And um, I, I suppose to that point, uh, again, something that actually you suggested in our messaging, which I really like the idea of, I've added to it very slightly. The role in the wider wine marketing and wine comms of critics and influencers, how do you see their roles and how do you see them sort of changing themselves? But what, what is their effect on kind of consumer attitudes and opinion? It's a, it's a, another great question, Lee. It's another great question. And actually, I was, I was thinking about this yesterday. I was talking about it with my, with my partner, uh, just my journey with the kind of critics. And, you know, back to that point, I remember being in Majestic Swindon in our burnt out kitchen um, and reading Jancis Robinson's Oxford Companion and just being like, wow, you know, this is, this is incredible. This is like all my favourite archaeology books or whatever. You know, and then fast forward six or seven years and I'm literally hosting press tastings for Jancis Robinson and actually Amazing. having that kind of one-to-one connection and, and things like that. And, you know, I am I am such a massive fan of our critics in this country. Um, I've had my ups and downs with them. Um, I remember once having to host, host a press tasting about a week after my then CEO um, had described them as a nest of vipers. <laughs> <laughs> You've, you've had you've had all the easy jobs, haven't you? In your career? Yeah, that's in the Telegraph as well. So that was nice. Um, <laughs> only his, I think his quote was something along the lines of "only obsessed with their own infighting as they descend into irrelevance," which was pretty. Um, I hope I won't get into trouble for recounting that. I mean, it's all there in black and white. It was, it was a tricky thing to try and kind of spin. Yeah. Um, when you're then, you know, because that was that was one of the things about Majestic at the time that was really difficult was that we had two very different opinions on critics. You know, we had the kind of very power to the people. It's our customers' opinions that matter. Down with the experts, really, was was the kind of naked mantra. And then we had the kind of Majestic, forty year old retailer. You know, customers who, when they get um jane mcquitty's top 100 literally come in with the times you know and, and, and hand it over to, yeah and hand it over to the staff and say can i have six of each of those please both kind of valid actually both perfectly valid opinions just not in the same business <laughs> um, you know and that's what we were constantly in the in the middle of really and particularly in my role i was i was head of pr for both companies for a while and it was a real kind of dichotomy trying to to kind of you know balance those two opinions and and I, you know, one of the reasons I stay with Majestic so long is that I'm very much in the, the camp of, I think the critics do a great job. I think, again, you know, we're very critical of the critics in the trade. Mm-hmm. And I was, I wonder if it's the same. I don't know if it's the same in the theatre world or the art world or the food world, you know, whether you've got a a kind of swirl of, of people who think they can do better. You know, what we do have is, you know, I remember Victoria Moore mentioned it on, on Twitter a year or two ago. She was saying that apparently her article in The Telegraph is one of the most clicked links in the entire paper. You know, so we've still got a really nicely engaged audience. And, mm-hmm. you know, without divulging any trade secrets at Majestic, when we had certain features, you would see a very sizable swing in terms of people coming in and buying that wine. And actually, what was always most pleasing was when it was on a wine that, 
had been in the range for a little while, maybe, has, was a bit of an unsung hero. And then all of a sudden it would be on Saturday Kitchen or it would be in the top 100 or, you know, whatever else in the Times. And suddenly it would have a whole new audience. And I think that's so powerful. And, you know, when used in the right way, it's so it does that job of bringing people in and expanding their wine horizons in a way that, you know, no amount of, and I, I, I don't mean to be disparaging to the, to the kind of influencer or blogger community, but just mm. you're still talking big audiences. Saturday kitchen is still a couple of million people, yeah. you know, and it's, they're, they're a different audience to tap into. You have to make a conscious decision to go and follow a, an influencer or to mm. engage with a wine blogger. Whereas, you know, the more kind of casual media, the times, the, bbc one sunday brunch whatever it is you know you can get a small casual viewer who might just catch a bit of it and and suddenly they're engaged and suddenly they're they're kind of coming in and asking questions so traditional critics i'm still a big fan of and i I really think they they probably need a bit more support and championing and and i don't know if reassurance is the right word but i'm sure that i'm sure they're absolutely fine with what they're doing but you know I, i still think they they deserve a lot of respect for what they do um, in terms of that kind of new guard coming in, I think it's back to what we were saying about people just finding their audiences. I think, if I'm being honest, the trade does a very good job of talking to itself a lot. Yeah. And actually, whether or not the focus is always on getting in front of new audiences, you know, maybe a bit more of the energy spent on internal debates could be looking at ways to to kind of bring new people into the fold a bit more. It's been a fascinating journey for me in terms of my career going from you know, when I joined Majestic, when I first started doing the PR job, we were very, very critic positive. We were very, you know, press tasting samples, everything to get the press on side. We then veered away from that for a while under the change of ownership and then veered very strongly back into that, um, you know, post post the kind of fallout and post the acquisition from Fortress. So, you know, I've, I've seen it from both sides and I've seen the effects. And actually, we get an amazing amount of new customers through the door from critics and people you can see from the sales data when we have a wine featured in the right place at majestic you would see new customers coming in working at somewhere like a, an english producer you know the positive impact on the business of getting a good write-up is huge and that's not necessarily from a bottom line sales point of view but just from morale mm-hmm. you know um and, and and the far-reaching impact that it can have that you just maybe don't think about immediately. I, I when I was when I was going through the interview process with Balfour, I read the wine anorak piece on Jamie Good's website about his visit there. It was one of the reasons I joined the business. You know, it was such a positive, interesting, well-written piece of writing. You know, and and you just don't know when you put th- when you put content out there into the ether what home it's going to find and what yep. kind of change it you know that's literally a life-changing piece of content for me yeah you know, that, I, I find that when, fascinating when, when you've got someone with, with the platform I think where critics you know really work is they've spent so long building up that platform and they've mm. got massive reach and, and those of us who want to talk about wine and share its joys whether that's the joy through storytelling or the joy of trying to describe what it tastes like or the joy of what food it goes with it's always platform. I think, how can I reach as many people as possible? Mm. And they've got that platform. And, and I've seen the same, you know, again, when I was Oxford Wine Company, if there was a wine that, you know, we were listed as a stockist that was in one of the national papers, I'd have customers that I hadn't necessarily seen before because they've read this thing in the Times. Or so. yeah. You know, and, and so there are people out there reading this stuff and, and it's having an effect. And, and if that's one new customer for one indie, that's a great thing. 
totally. Because you know, they because they have such reach. Interesting. I was, I was doing a, a consumer event at the weekend, uh, and I sort of said, you know, where, where do you get your? You know, you, you've come to a wine event, right? You've actively chosen to come to that, so you, you, you're different to just the more sort of everyday regular consumer. And I, I don't mean that as a pejorative at all. Um, but you know, people who just like a drink at home on a Friday night aren't necessarily the same people who go to a to a mm-hmm. wine event on a Saturday evening. So, you know, where, where do you consume your wine information from? Is it Twitter? Is it critics? Is it influencers? Uh, is is it TV show, wine show TV, for example, or the, the wine show? And and a guy said would said I, I I wouldn't sit and watch a 30, 40 minute program about wine, but I will watch Saturday Kitchen and get that five to ten minute clip of maybe it's Ollie yeah. Smith talking about something. He's like. That is perfect. You go. I've never thought of that. Like the reach that you can get in that five minutes, incredible. Oh, it's huge. I know. You know, I I know Ollie reasonably well. I'm lucky enough to say, and I just he is the epitome for me of of kind of that role because he can he can pitch himself at any level. Yeah. You know, you get this impression of him being this kind of verbose, bumbly kind of lovely character who can describe wines as. I don't know, a zippy spacecraft blasting off into a planet of tangerine or whatever. You know, he has these lovely kind of slightly tongue-in-cheek turns of of phrase. But then if you chat to him about wine seriously, God, he knows his stuff. You know, and he's a real champion for, you know, interesting Greek varieties. And, you know, he does does a really cracking job of just positive reinforcement. Yeah. And I, I love that about him. And and I think it's such a powerful way of communicating. And, you know, I don't know, I have no idea what, you know, some of the more inverted commas serious aspects of the trade think about that style. But I, I just think it's brilliant because it, it's exactly what we've been talking about all, all morning in terms of pitching yourself at the right level for the consumer and being able to then take them on that ladder. And I think he is... You know, whenever I try and think about the way I want to approach marketing, I very much think about that kind of level yeah. because it is yeah. just, you know, you'll watch him on Saturday Kitchen, you'll get, you know, a minute, 30 seconds, whatever word you can get in edgeways with a member of the, I don't know, All Saints or whoever. That's a dated reference, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but sat next to him. <clears throat> but then, you know, you can then follow his, you know, his stuff elsewhere and he'll he'll give you a proper interesting story into the history of, to know Greco yeah. or whatever else, and I just, yeah, I, I find that that really effective. But I, you know, and that's not to say that it's just horses for courses, isn't it? You know, yeah. and, and actually, you know, I'm, I am behind the times. I need to sharpen up my game in terms of the new generation, in terms of the TikTok users, and you know everything else. I feel like I am in the ten years I've been doing this, and I'm I'm not ancient by any means. I know I've got a lot of grey hair now, but I'm only you know <laughs> early thirties. But I feel like I've been left behind by stuff already. Yeah. And I think we, we always have to safeguard against that and not just be yeah. not just disengaged because we don't understand it. But I still think there is a massive home for the the kind of the traditional critic. Um and I I know we're maybe gonna touch on it, but that Giles Corrin article, which seems to have set Twitter sphere ablaze, and I seen there's been a drinks business article with kind of Libby and people like that talking about it. And you know, it is that kind of back to that kind of self-flagellation of wine critics yeah. and, and why we yeah. like to criticise the critics so much. And I don't know if it's always fair and I don't know if it's, I mean, I think it is. I've I've met some shockers, I'm not going to lie, but yeah. I think they are gently shuffling from the spotlight and we have got a really engaging, interesting group of people coming through. 
Um, I just hope that we still have the audiences and the ways of getting them in front of you know the mass media and and stuff as well because it's it's such a powerful tool again it, it goes back to that thing I, I mentioned earlier from twitter you know that somebody said not everybody's interested and passionate and in wine as we are have we realized that and you said sort of, we, we constantly you know, say we the trade as a whole that self-flagellation is going wine's a bit snobby again i think about the, the vast majority of people i work with in wine whether it's sort of people like yourself but in, in sort of the marketing background, whether it's winemakers, whether it's wholesalers, people trying to sell to the public, but most people aren't. You, you, as no. you say, you still meet the odd one, and, and whether that's a critic or someone running an independent wine merchant, they do exist, but they're pretty few and far between. Yeah. You know, wine is now the UK's favourite alcoholic beverage. Mm-hmm. Th- th- there's a disconnect there somewhere. Yeah, we I should acknowledge so. that that has been part of wine's history, but it's not as bad as we make it out to be, I really don't think. No. No, I, I I entirely agree. I entirely agree. Then again, I will point out that we are two members of the wine trade just chatting to ourselves about the Ironically, you said it's something that I've said for years as well. You know, the wine trade's very good at talking to itself, which is exactly what this is right now as we record. It's wonderful. Um, now, now, just in terms of sort of time, I have to move us on um, a little bit. Unfortunately, I, I, I could talk to you and listen to you all day, as I'm sure our uh, two listeners after this episode <laughs> could as well. Yeah, um, now, obviously, Marketing Majestic National Retailer moving to, to Balfour, you know, a, a good-sized English wine producer. What are the differences in your approach? How is that role different going from one to the other? I mean, hugely. I I think I was, I was prepared for a change of pace, but the change has been so stark, you know. And Majestic are a a a bear moth, really, in terms of the amount of marketing. You probably you would never see how much marketing they do, but they. I mean, they're they're brilliant at it. And I'd say that as somebody who was part of the team, but didn't put in place a lot of the things I was working with. You know, there were much more talented people before me, and they are really, really interesting at what they do. And I don't think actually talking about giving credit, I don't think I can say this now because I'm not there anymore. And it's it's quite nice to be able to really be really positive about it. But I don't think Majestic get the credit they deserve mm-hmm. in the trade. I think they are criticised a lot for not doing things when actually they do do a lot of what is asked of them. You know, when you're talking about the pipeline of WSET people, when you're talking about engaging new consumers, they're really good at it they're really good at it and they put a lot of money into it in terms of samples and tastings and events and you know the the amount of marketing that business churns out um it was it was huge and it was a bit overwhelming at times to be honest um and i was very lucky to have a, a immense team there who were just about keeping the wheels moving but it you know we were talking 40 emails a week wow would be would be written you know, a 32 pager every month, mailer every month, product descriptions, web copy for 1300 SKUs, you know, just the sheer volume of marketing and writing. It's massive, massive, you know, and it's, and that's the job, right? And it's not, yeah. that's not me criticizing or anything else. That is just when you are that big and when you have that much voice and, you know, fantastic engaged customer base, really great supplier base, um, you know, and, and some really great leadership in that business then that is, you know, you do have to set yourself pretty high standards to meet. Mm-hmm. Going to, to somewhere like Balfour, you know, with just the, the, the challenges are so different. You know, it's, it's, it's actually, for me, 
it's trying to stop a lot of what Balfour are doing at the moment and just trying to just calm calm it down a bit. Yeah. <laughs> And and just try and really focus on that messaging because you're going from somewhere where you have effectively overall marketing control for 1,300 brands, you know, and you choose the messages you put out about those wines or those beers or whatever to suddenly trying to really be very disciplined and focused about what you're saying about one brand. It's a really interesting challenge and really unique. And, you know, I, I don't, again, I'm, I'm going to blow Ferg's trumpet, so to speak. Um, I don't think that the team at Balfour really got the credit for what they're doing at the moment. And I can kind of say that with slightly more um, bias because obviously I'm there and I'm doing their PR. So (laughs) (laughs) fantastic. Everyone should respect us. Uh, There's there's the next Balfour email. Yo, you signed up for this. Show us some respect. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly that. No, but I mean, just in terms of, you know, we've been doing some work recently. I'm just looking at the range and just, I mean, it's a huge range. It's, 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 you know, you look at some English producers and they've got, you know, even some of the big ones, the, you know, three or five kind of wines, you know, we've we got about 30 or so. It, it's a huge wine. number, isn't it, for, for you know, a, a mid-sized English producer? Exactly. And and some really interesting wines as well. You know, some really, I've been, one of the things, I mean, my, my actual wine consumption has gone up dramatically since joining because I'm just spending my day so immersed in the product and you know i'm driving down to kent every week um and spending a couple of days down there and i get to go out in the vineyard and i get to spend time with ferg tasting at the tanks and i get to you know meet the tour guides and you're just so immersed in one brand um that you know you just want to go home and drink it every night as well (laughs) Um, which is affecting my i'm feeling spending more than i'm earning at the moment in Balfour, but anyway um so, you know, for me, it's it's that discipline when you've got so many stories to tell, how you tell them and, you know, trying to build that engaged audience because, you know, huge customer base at Majestic, you know, huge amount of people to get that message across to, absolutely minuscule, obviously, at Balfour at the moment, just because it's, you know, they've not been run as a, as a kind of brand in that way for a while. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very much got the feeling of a family run business still, which is, which is, brilliant you know after being at quite a big business it's such yeah. a nice change but it, it also comes with its limitations in terms of trying to bring in some kind of discipline and some you know ways of working and things like that you know you, every day is is very varied and very different and you know really exciting but also trying to get it a bit more big picture at times is yeah. is is a unique challenge but it, that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts are probably a bit boring to go into that's just me moaning about my day job but in terms of the, the kind of wider marketing messaging you know it's it's how can we kill some of those myths that are around around english wine how can we show people that you know english red is actually something to be reckoned with now and that it's yeah. not just about fizz and that you know and, and to try and do that in a way that is really qualitative in terms of you know really positive really engaging brand messaging rather than just being like oh we're better than the french you know yeah yeah yeah. things um you know and and the the amazing thing is it's it's a brilliant team there and it's you know it's a gorgeous place i would genuinely not if i'm allowed to do a little bit of my own marketing messaging on there but if you haven't visited then i mean you've just got to get down there it's 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 a stunning 400 acres of woodland and vineyards and wildflower meadows and it's got you know the most state-of-the-art winery on its on its premises probably in the uk and it's got in my opinion one of the most talented winemakers although i'm you know hopefully doesn't listen back to this no, um, he never does 
Good, that's all right. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's it's just an, an an amazing kind of management team as well. So it's it's a, it's a really exciting place to be. Um, you know, and, and plans to to get up to a million bottles. So mm. you know, going to be a, a big old big old force at some point if not already but in terms of that marketing it's just trying to build that audience is, is a completely new challenge because i kind of have always inherited a an audience yeah. at, at Majestic yeah. and trying to you know get those messages across when when you are one of many voices whereas at majestic you were always the uk wine retailer you know yeah, yeah. and so it's you know much more of an uphill challenge but also much more of a focused challenge as well there's a huge opportunity english wine is, is growing and it's growing in terms of consumer accessibility knowledge mm. understanding but now now is a key tipping point i think for english wine to go okay consumers know it exists the at the overall attitude a decade ago was it was perceived as a bit of a novelty that's kind of gone people know it's serious in inverted commas now we've really got to use the term hook earlier now we've got to really hook them in um and i think for someone like balfour you know the wines are so good uh, mm. and you know obviously i'm good friends with with ferg um if I if I don't think a wine is up to snuff or I don't think there's something right, I, I tell him that. I, you know, I'm not yeah. here to sort of massage his ego. If I like his wine, I tell him that as well. But if I if I taste him and go, I, I don't think that's great. What's going on? You know, what is is it something I don't understand or, or or all of that? But the wines are so good. The team is so driven, and now they've got someone with your knowledge and experience and enthusiasm and passion and ability. You're mm. the exact kind of person that that business needs to go right. Let's let's get this next level. And to, to come back to what you said about, you know, if you've not been down there, I was very lucky to, to get there last summer. The weather was stunning. It was, mm. You know, it was, it was, I think it was north of 30 degrees. I just remember sitting there, you know, on that veranda right in the vineyards and going, people pay money to go abroad to experience this. To go, I'm in France or Italy and I get to walk around the winery and sit and eat really nice charcuterie. You can do that in this country now. And all right, the one thing we've never necessarily been able to guarantee is the weather, but even if the weather's not great it's still such a wonderful place to visit i was just agreeing with you just saying it's it's gorgeous and that's you know one of the nice things about that business as well is it's 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 clear that it's from a hospitality background which makes it quite yeah. different you know they really they want people to come and stick their noses around the winery and you know come and really and the owner richard and, and leslie they're they're from that you know, Liberty London and yep. Malmaison and, you know, that really shines through actually in terms of, you know, we we're there on Friday night for a cocktail night and it, it was, it was just stunning. And there was 120 people there, Brilliant. you know, all enjoyed. And it was a beautiful summer's evening, you know, gorgeous sunset over the vines. You sat there drinking a, I had a glass of rose actually, a cocktail <laughs> night, and, you know, and you just think, yeah, oh, this is, this is 50 miles, 50 minutes from London, sorry. And it's, yep. You know, you're absolutely right, and they're, you know they're far from unique in that. I think, I think the the one of the biggest assets, and it's pretty unsung actually, is this wine tourism for England. It's such an opportunity. It's such an opportunity, and if we can, if we can get it right, and that's not just Balfour. That is, you know, that's my plea to to all the kind of producers out there. If we can get this idea of people coming and experiencing the vineyards themselves right. You know, that's when we talk about storytelling and engaging people and everything else. You can't have a better experience than coming in, you know, walking the vines themselves and mm -hmm. having somebody tell you, right, this vine here produces that rosé that you can go try a glass of in 10 minutes yeah. or whatever. Like it's, you know, that is everything for me. It goes back to our conversations right at the start about what appeals to people 
coming into the wine industry from different backgrounds, it is that tangibility that you can only really experience kind of in a vineyard itself. That I think just it's romantic and it's scientific and it's delicious. Yeah. It, it encompasses all of that. What wine is ultimately about experience. Mm. You get the consumers there, they're drinking the wine, great. Once you, but nothing beats tasting or drinking wine in situ. That is yeah. the very best way to experience. You might have your favourite Argentine Malbec. If you're able to get out to the vineyard, the winery itself, it, it, it just elevates it beyond, beyond, beyond. Yeah. Now, just because of time, again, in our text uh, exchange, we sort of talked, we were going to touch on doing the MW during COVID. Now, just for time, because again, that's a really long, interesting conversation. If you would be amenable to returning to TM and TM Towers, you've got your pass, uh, you, you know, security's all done so you can get in was, any was time. Snooker the right if you would be amenable to coming back, um, I, 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 that's a conversation I'd love to have, but I don't want to just have it, it like squeeze it in in two minutes. Um, because no. it would be doing you and the story a, a huge disservice. So I suppose my I've got two final questions for you. Without giving away trade secrets or the, the secrets of your incredible skills and abilities, there's a brand new English winery or brand starting out. What would be your top tip from a marketing perspective? What should they be doing? Oh, that's a lovely question. I, I think my top tip would be sort your brand out <laughs> and that's not a, that's that's a really generic answer but it's something that we're now having to kind of basically go back and retrofit at Balfour a little bit because it's like I say it's grown very organically a lot of people think they understand what the brand is and it, it means a lot of different you know you'll get a different answer from Ferg than you would from maybe the owners from you you know and it just that and that's not a problem at all that's just because it's been an organic brand but we're now having to kind of, from a marketing point of view, go back and really try and nail down, right, what are the four things that whenever we talk about this brand, we want to be touching on, okay? And it's, you know, and then you can build all the marketing plans in the world you want, as long as they are built around those four things. As long as whenever we put a social media post out, it relates to one of those things. As long as whenever we send an email, there's something about one of those, well, the whole thing relates to one of those things. You know, it's just what are the four words? What are the four feelings? What are the four kind of mission statements you have? And it doesn't have to be four, it could be three, it can be whatever, but, you know, call them brand pillars in the, in the marketing world. What, what are they? Are they concrete? Are they approved by your customers and by your colleagues? Because the big thing is you want to make sure you take your own people on that journey as well. You know, I'm a big advocate of engaging your own people before you go out and engage customers. Everyone's got to believe in that mission and that vision. And it can't just be, we want to sell some wine because, you know, you'll come unstuck very quickly. So what are the four things you want to be talking about? And, you know, and then you can understand what kind of a brand you want to be and what kind of a mission, you know, you might be an upsetter. You might want to come in and say, yeah, we're going to knock France off the top spot and we're going to not play by the rules and we're going to be that kind of brew dog or whatever, you know, or are you a very traditional classic? We want to engage the critics. We want to, you know, do interesting clonal techniques or whatever it is but you've got to understand where you want to get to as a brand and then be very disciplined about how you talk about it so i mean that would be my top tip really is just you know and have some fun and spend some time at the coalface of talking to customers before you decide on it as well and put your colors in the mast on the mast and just and then stick to it i mean to thine own self be true um, great, great advice. The, the last question for you, I've taken a huge amount of your time on a, on a bank holday as well. No um, I know you're um, PR, not HR. 
However, Fergus has taken unscheduled leave, which is why he's not here. What do you think would be a suitable punishment for his transgression? I think he should be made to uh, go to every game of the 100 this year. <laughs> As a test cricket fanatic, I cannot imagine anything worse. Yeah, I can. I, my knowledge of cricket is incredibly limited, but I know <laughs> that, that I know that. Yeah. So, um, Fergus, you, you won't be listening to this. That's what's going to be happening. I, alternatively, I was going to go and take him to watch the snooker with me because I know he really would not love that. Um, Bye. Yeah, you can you can have that one as well. Brilliant, um, Jack. This has been fabulous. Thank you so much for your for your time, no, sharing your no. a, a brilliant story and and wonderful insights as well. You've been absolute joy to listen to uh, and to talk to as well, and um, it is hugely appreciated. Um, hopefully, um, we can we, we can get you back to to talk about the MW as well. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. What an absolute pleasure it's been. Cheers. No, thank you. And thank you for your time and for the for the very kind invite as well. I've not, not really been been asked on podcasts and things before, so I was pretty pretty nervy going into it, but I hope <laughs> hope there's some in amongst all the rabbiting on there's some interesting stuff in there for, for the listener yeah. plural. All 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 interesting. And I uh, if, if anybody else does listen to this podcast, they'll be snapping you up for sure. And if, if they're not, they're missing a trick, they sh- they should be getting you on there most definitely. Thank you yeah. so much. Very kind. En- enjoy the rest of the bank holiday and we'll speak and soon. And you, Lee. Great, really great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Thanks to Jack Merrilees for joining me, of all people. You know, it's different if he gets to talk to Fergus, but he had to endure an hour with me. Um, huge thanks to Jack for, not only for his time, but as, as we mentioned a couple of times there, for doing so on a bank holiday. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, there's a lot of nuggets in there, and I'll certainly be going back and uh, listening again. And hopefully, yes, we will get him back because he undertook the MW, started during COVID, and there's definitely more stories there. Once again, dear listener, thank you very much for listening to TM and TM. Do contact us on the social media channels at maker underscore merchant, or drop us an email at themakerandthemerchant at gmail.com with your thoughts, ideas, questions. Uh, I'm off to taste this bottle of Ferg's new Bacchus that he very kindly sent me. And to pair a song with it, a couple of you suggested something, but I've made my own decision about what I'll be playing, so do look out for that one. Um, that's probably a sign for me to go. That's what I'll call Tate in the background, giving it a huge yawn, um, which indicates it's time for me to stop speaking. Thanks for listening. Take care, be safe, and see you all again soon.